Um, <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> it's like a little puppet show. Um, it's funny though. Can, can you put that graphic up of the peep roast, the peep roast ad? Do you see the two peeps right there, right next to April 7? It just, it's, it's a little tragic, isn't it? It's a little bit sad. Oh no! Um, <laughs> sorry, I just, that caught me in my service. I'm like, that's really, I didn't notice those before, and they just look so, it just looks like torture of a small animal, doesn't it? Um, very good to be with you guys. As um, we were watching that video, I saw um, a couple that was in my own rooted group. It was my fifth rooted group that I had led. And they're the ones holding the sign that said, we were strangers in a new city, and then we found a new home. And, you know, I, I think as, if you, if you are a part of this community, if this has become kind of your church, the, the, the Mariner's Mission Viejo community, and you're still kind of going, well, I go on the weekends and then I go home. Um, let me just tell you that, um, and, you know, this is sort of free, <laughs> but that the, um, the, the experience of Rooted in connecting people in community, connecting people with God and with their purpose is absolutely, it's, it's really quite amazing. And um, you heard people whooping and people are getting baptized. It is more, it's so much more than a class. It's not a membership experience. It is, it is really kind of a reordering of priority and a rethinking about how God and the church really ought to function. If you are kind of on the fringes of, you know, not sure whether I should do this or, you know, I just like coming on the weekends and that's enough. Or you're thinking the weekends isn't enough and I want to take a next step. I mean, Rooted is, is absolutely the best way to go. And um, there's tons and tons of stories probably in this room about how great it has been for people's lives. Um, but like I said, it is good to be here. I, I would encourage you to do that, to get connected. As I saw these kids up here, um, my own kids are at the Irvine campus. They're doing the singing and the hand motions, and they're all excited about it. And, my, and so it's a little sad. I don't get to see them. I'm here. So I'm getting dressed this morning, and my youngest, who's not doing this, he's three, he's like, so, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm getting dressed. And he goes, so are you going to take Molly and Dylan to the thing? I go, no, I'm not, buddy. I'm teaching. And he pauses. Are you teaching people how to sing? I go, no, they don't. They turn off my microphone if I try that, buddy. He goes, oh, so you're teaching them how to dance. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing with the grown-ups. Everybody, let's all get loosened up. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, very fun to see the kids do that. Anyway, it's the third week of a series called All Things New. And the All Things New is just sort of a, um, it's, a it's capturing this one ten-cent idea of the, a Bible word called atonement which means, uh, literally means to cover over. But it is through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross that people are redeemed, or as to say, set free back to the way things ought to be, to be with God, to have a relationship with him in fullness. And so this is kind of what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks. If you have missed the previous two weeks, I would say it is very much worth your time to um, download them from the podcast and listen to them. Um, I, I would say, I do this too. I, I, don't, I don't live that far away from... Um, from our office, and I try to listen to the, the podcast in that distance, and I didn't realize this till recently. You can listen on your iPhone or whatever, your iPod. You can, you can listen to it at double speed, and so I've been listening to, like, Mike's messages at double speed, and so it's pretty awesome, like, to try and, you're like, how in the world am I going to get through this for the first 30 seconds, and then your brain kind of adapts, and it doesn't sound like a chipmunk, by the way. It just sound, you can just actually get the, but I would say, Please, 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 if you want to really catch up on the, what we're talking about with this word atonement, which is multi-layered, you'll need the other, the other couple of weeks to kind of catch it because we won't be able to cover all of it in one week. So it has been very, very cool to be a part of that and be a part of the series. So would you do this before we get into today's message? Would you just pray with me? So would you bow and just pause for a moment? Jesus, for us, sometimes the most difficult work we might have to do in our entire week is to stop doing stuff. And so we stop. 
pause. In our ceasing to produce things and do stuff and react, and our ceasing to move, God, would you, um, would you be made known to us in a very real way? We acknowledge that you're already here, that you're already at work in our own hearts, and that in our pause, in our just a moment of ceasing to do stuff, God, that it, this moment might become sacred. God, in all of our life, with all of that we are up to and busy with, it is hard sometimes to sense and hear your voice. God, would you speak to us clearly? God, would you give to us a sense of your victory that we might also be victorious? God, would we leave here today different because of the work you've done in this room, in and through us, and through each other? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you need a Bible, some folks will pass one out to you. Um, and if someone looks like they're carrying a, you know, sort of a very large stack of Bibles, just help them out and take one off of there, even if you don't need one, because they'll get tired and they're walking around and they need you to take one off of their sort of the load that they're carrying. So anyway, um, we're in John chapter 12. If you want to turn there, we're not going to be there for a little bit, but if you want to kind of prepare, we're in John 12. But we're a society, you guys, as we're getting ready for stuff, we're, we're a society obsessed with victory. It was winning. I was trying to, um, I was trying to think back over, uh, like, well, you know, like the Magic Johnson just bought the, the, the Dodgers, and, um, which is kind of crazy to say he just bought a sports franchise. And Magic Johnson now owns the Dodgers. And they were showing some highlights this last night. I was watching on TV, and they're showing highlights of this last season where they had, you know, some really great players on their team, but they were losing anyways. And they're showing this guy, you know, just crushing home runs into empty stands at Dodger Stadium. And there is this very clear sense that when, you know, when teams win, people go to see them win. They don't want to go see a losing team. I was even thinking, watching it last night, I was watching, um, I was trying to figure out, I was trying to remember all of the Lakers championships of the past years, who they've beaten. And the only one I could really remember was the Celtics, because everybody hates the Celtics. And if you like the Celtics, we have a rooted group specifically designed to help you break the stronghold of Celtics, sort of. But I just want you to know that right now. But... I was trying to remember every other team except the Celtics that they've beaten in the past couple of years, starting at around 2000, and I, I got one. It was like the 76ers and the Pacers. I just can't remember which order it was. But I remember, I, we don't remember who loses. It's very easy for us to imagine who wins and remember who wins games. It's really tough for us to remember who loses. In 2000, when the Lakers won, this is kind of the, this is sort of the, the new era of the awesomeness of the Lakers. I grew up, you know, I grew up a Lakers fan back in the sort of, you know, the, the Lake Show, Showtime sort of era of, of Lakers basketball. And then to sort of have this resurgence in around 2000, I was like, this is the greatest, this is so awesome. And I remember we're, a couple of us who were all working at church staff at a time, we were like, let's all, let's all go to the parade. You know, like they win a championship and then you go to the parade. They always see that on the news. I'm like, we got to go. It was on a Monday. We, you know, we don't, church people don't work on Mondays. So it was like, let's go. So we're, um. We drive out to the, the Staples Center, and, and there we are. We're like, there's a bunch of us. Like, this is going to be so great. We're in this suburban, and we're going to be up there, and we're going to be cheering. It'll be the Lakers, and, you know, whatever. and I don't know what we expected was going to happen. But we get out to this parade route, and the parade is, it, we're like three or 400 yards deep of people before Figueroa, the street where the, the parade's coming on. And we're standing there, and they're like, someone goes, there they are. And we look over, and there's like, a string of fire trucks going by with the Lakers on top. And I'm like, there they, I think that's, hey, that's Kobe and that's Shaq. Woo! And they turned the corner and they were gone. <laughs> and we're all like, well, that parade is awesome. There's a lot of sweaty people here and no bathrooms. And 
then someone would say something in a microphone and people in front of us would yell. And so we were like, Woo! Lakers! And then we, it was just kind of this, there's the parade. And there's sort of this, the team comes, comes you know, driving in on the, on the fire trucks and everybody cheers. And it's sort of this entry of the, the, the victors who have come into their city and everybody's all excited about it. And I was thinking about this. I had this in mind as we were, as I was coaching my son's um, second and third grade basketball team this past season. And we, my, uh, my buddy Kyle Zimmerman, some of you guys know Kyle, we're, we're both coaching our boys and a couple other people on the team. And we're, we're I just, we're imagining, you know, it's going to be great. We're going to, you know, the victory, we like had the victory parade already planned out before the season began. We're going to, you know, have our bikes riding, the kids, we'll have streamers, we'll, it'll just be, we're, we're going to win every game. I mean, it's going to be awesome. We go into the, there's only four teams in the league, by the way, but we go into to, to the draft to pick up our, our team. We're in the Boys and Girls Club League of Irvine. We're like, we're going to pick up, we'll pick up the worst players and we'll win, you know. And the, the, the like, guy running the whole thing was like, <laughs> okay. So he's like, you can have this brother and sister combination where the brother is, does not want to play at all and the sister is actually pretty good. But they, neither of them, like, really, they, they're not, I mean, no one really wants them and their parents are really tough. And I was like, we will take them and we will win. We will foster their young minds into basketball superstardom, and you will, you will rue the day. I don't know who ever talks like that. But anyway, I was just like, we'll, we'll win, you know. And so we get, all these, we get these teams together. And we're like, you guys, we told all the kids, we got them together. We're like, you guys, if we work hard, and if we try really hard, we try our best, and we hustle, we'll win every game. We will win. And they were like, okay. We got out there. We lost our first game 32 to 9. Next game was like 32 to 12, and we were like, ah, double digits. Oh, yes. You see what happens when you work hard? It's like, yeah, we can lose by 20 points. Um, we lost every single game. Oh, I know, people. The, and all we would do is after we realized we had no hope of winning any games because we had drafted so poorly, was we're just going to yell. We're going to yell at the top of our lungs, and it will be positive things. We'll just find things to be positive about. So, you know, this one, the, the brother of this brother-sister combo, I don't know what happened to him, but the second he put his, like, jersey on, his little silky uniform, I think that, like, either the logo or something on there from the Boys and Girls Clubs kind of, like, just kind of captures attention, but he would just sort of rub his chest walking around the court. <laughs> We're like, William, run! <laughs> just kind of like, that's all he would do. And if he was ever playing any defense, if he ever decided he wanted to play defense, he would just get right up to the guy and he would literally do this. Ha, 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 And so we're like, William, way to get in that guy's face. That's what we're talking about. You guys see William getting in his face is what we're talking about out here. If a guy was running, we're like, way to run. You're running. We run on our team. You know, it was like, didn't matter. I mean, it was like, we could find anything. You know, you fell. Way to get up. That's what we talk about our team. That's what I'm talking about. We're yelling so loud. Referee was like, one referee stopped us during the timeout, and he goes, you guys. He goes, I coach, he goes, I referee every level of basketball. Up through, you know, high school and some junior college games and stuff. And he goes, you two are the loudest coaches I've ever been around. And we're like, thank you, we know. Let's go, get out there. You're doing a great job, too. You know, whatever. Now, we have prepared our team. To be victorious, we will win every game with our hard work and discipline. <laughs> and we lost every single time. <laughs> it was really tragic. Get ready for the parade. Here we go. We're going to start winning. Never won. Well, on this day is the day we celebrate this victorious sort of parade that Jesus has walking into the city of Jerusalem. It's called Palm Sunday. 
It's a day in which all of the sort of the, all of the hopes are foisted upon Jesus as if everything we had hoped to imagine was going to be made true, and Jesus is going to bring that about. And I want you to check this out. This is what's called the triumphal entry, and I want you to listen to the optimism and victory and hope that's kind of spoken of in John 12, beginning in verse 12. So here we are. If you want to check this out, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, but here it is. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on the donkey's colt. Now, there's a lot of prophetic language there we don't have time to get into, but I just want to highlight a few things here in this sort of moment. First is this. There's the word Hosanna being spoken, which is sort of like the Hebrew equivalent of like, we're number one. And the palm branches being the foam finger. Sort of, we're number one. Hosanna, Hosanna. It means this. Literally, it means save us now. It's a plea, meaning save us now. But it's also a term used to describe sort of an acclamation of praise. You are the one who saves. Save us now, Savior. Does that make sense? So there's these people all yelling, here he comes. We got the palm branches. We're shouting, we're number one. Hosanna. There is this sort of entrance of this guy coming into the, the city, and he's got this huge amount of attention. Now, the last time before Jesus, the most recent time before Jesus, when there were palm branches being thrown down at someone's feet, was, about, was regarding this guy named Judas Maccabeus. Now, if you're familiar at all with sort of Jewish you know, sort of stuff, the story of Judas Maccabeus is the story of Hanukkah, really. And so here's what happens. There's this guy named Antiochus IV, who is, you know, one of the descendants, sort of the fallout of um, uh, Alexander the Great. This is hundreds of years after Alexander the Great, but this sort of owning and, you know, sort of overseeing this part of the world. And he's got all kinds of Greek symbols, Greek worship happening in the temple. The temple itself has been profane. There's all these idols throughout. And so Judas Maccabeus and his brothers forms, which by the way, Maccabees is, um, Maccabee means hammer. So it's these guys, the hammer, who decide to go out and they form some guerrilla warfare tactics and they go out and they destroy all the signs and symbols of this foreign guy and they throw him out of the temple and they rededicate the temple. And everybody's pretty stoked about it. And here's what happens. You don't have this in your Bible. This is, this is 2 Maccabees. Unless you have a Catholic Bible, this Bible didn't make it through the Protestant Reformation. This book didn't make it through the Protestant Reformation. But here's the account of what happens in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 7. It says this. So after all these things... Carrying rods entwined with leaves, beautiful branches and palms, they sang hymns of grateful praise to him who had successfully brought about the purification of his own place. And by public decree and vote, they prescribed that the whole Jewish nation should celebrate these days every year. And such was the end of Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes. So the people, in response to Judas Maccabeus, the one who had wiped out all of Antiochus and all of his sort of pagan worship, who had restored the right rule of God, which means God's stuff is now taken care of, and God's people will have a holy place to worship in, they start throwing down the palm branches. They start holding him up as the one who would make things right again. In fact, Judas Maccabeus' youngest brother ends up being the high priest at the temple. And this kind of expectation is now on Jesus, the one who would make things right, who would restore and establish the right rule of God. And here comes the one they call the king. And his kingdom would be made known and be made apparent. And they're saying, Hosanna, here's our moment. No longer do we have to deal with Caesar and his pagan idols and all that stuff. We got God. And here comes the one who would make everything right, to establish the right rule of God again. Let me recap a little bit. Jesus enters the city. 
There's huge crowds that show up. They're all there for the Passover feast. And there's huge crowds that are there. And there's, there's joy. They're shouting Hosanna. They got the palm fronds. And there's basically this account of victory. It's, they're already calling themselves one. We win. Here comes Jesus. And the question is why? So that's really complicated. Why are they so excited about Jesus? Because throughout Jesus' ministry, there were times where there were huge crowds around him pressing up against him. At other times, he was all abandoned and all alone because the crowds didn't want anything to do with him. And in this moment, there's a huge amount of crowds. They're there for Passover, but there's something else. John gives us a clue because this story sort of falls in line right after chapter 11 in which John tells a story about another miracle that Jesus does. Look what it says. and Skip down to verse 17. It says this. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. First thing is this, verse 17. Jesus performs an incredibly famous miracle. Some of you have heard of this miracle. Where the brother of Mary and Martha, this guy Lazarus, is dead. He's been dead for a while. His body's decomposing. It already smells like death. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb. Hey, Lazarus, come up. Come on out. Cute. I mean, it's amazing. Now, everybody, everybody in this time, like any one of us, would say, if there's a story about someone rising from the dead at the words of another person, that story would start taking off. Hey, I heard this guy said some words and a dude just walked out of the grave. People would start telling that story over and over and over again. Now, look what it says in verse 18. This is really important. Many people, because they had heard he performed not this miracle, but this sign, went out to meet him. It's a sign. In other words, there's something more, as as amazing as the act of raising someone from the dead might be, there's something else going on here. It's a sign of something. The one who could raise the one, at the time when when God's anointed one, the Messiah, would show up, it was believed that people, one of the beliefs, was that people would be raised from the dead. There would be miracles, there would be healings, and there would be people being raised from the dead. Which means then that Jesus is starting to embody this thing this Messiah kind of idea, the one who would be the rescuer of all of God's people. And there's this sort of, if Jesus is enacting messianic signs, then people who had hopes to overthrow Caesar and his Roman empire, the Roman dogs, all of those hopes are now on Jesus too. Hey, if you can raise people from the dead, then it's just a matter of moments before you call down a legion of angels and wipe out all of Rome. Get rid of those people and restore the right rule of God again. So they begin to think about Jesus. Here he comes. Hosanna. God is now among us. He's with us. And we're going to have, Israel will be back and we will say goodbye to Caesar and his horrible Roman dogs. Because part of the the Jewish history is one so incredibly connected with with the throwing off of tyranny. Most notably the Pharaoh in in Egypt. And so now the people are going, well, we've, we've seen the Pharaoh, and now we got Caesar. It's basically the same thing. We're just waiting for the moment when Caesar is humiliated and destroyed, because here's our guy. He's entering the city through the eastern gate, like a Messiah is supposed to do. Now the religious elite are starting to try, and they're a little bit frustrated with Jesus. They see him starting to act like a Messiah. He's doing all these things like Messiahs are supposed to do. And they keep telling him, stop acting like the Messiah. And he's like, I kind of, do the math. I'm kind of... Figure it out, guys. And so they're trying to figure out how to put a stop to all this stuff. And verse, verse 19 says this. So the Pharisees, the religious elite, said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And you begin to see the sort of, the, the plot to destroy and kill Jesus starts to unfold a little bit here. 
And there's a, there's a new tone, which is, you know, represented here, in which people are beginning to go, wait a second, we, you know, we're not really sure about Jesus and the Messiah sort of thing, and so we've got to end him, we've got to put an end to this. And what they say is we have to stop it, and yet they say, see how the whole world has gone after him? Now, they're clearly, they're speaking in some form of exaggeration and hyperbole. But what's ironic here is this is actually what Jesus intends to do, to bring the whole world to himself, to restore all the world back to God. That's his intention. And the people begin to wonder as this victorious conqueror, the one who's showing his power even over death in the story of Lazarus, begins to start talking about his own death. Because the own, there's no way that a Messiah, the anointed one, the, in Greek, Christ, there's no way that the Christ, the Messiah, there's no way that that guy could die and be victorious. There's just no way. That doesn't make sense. Everybody at that time had seen Roman crosses. It was very clear about death. And, that, and, the, and if there was a, to be any sort of victory, it couldn't be by the Messiah, the one chosen for God's victorious or a judgment on Rome, could die. Verse 31, Jesus says this. Here's his mission. Now's the time for judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. Stop right there. To look sort of at the, to ask anybody at this time, who's the prince, who's like the ruler of the whole world? At this time, they would say, well, I guess Caesar is pretty much the ruler of the known world. He's pretty big and powerful. And Jesus isn't talking about Caesar. Evidently, he's not that interested in sort of political squabbles or military conquest or anything like that. He seems to be interested in something else. Because the prince of this world that Jesus is referring to is not Caesar. It is the accuser, the deceiver, the one we call the Satan or Satan, the devil. His intention is about driving out Satan. Verse 32, and, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, flashing back again to verse 19. Now, Jesus uses this language that kings use. Only when kings use it, it's pretty arrogant language. Because the whole idea of literally and figuratively being lifted up is one in which people go, there's the king, look at him, there he is, he's up on that palace, huge throne, everybody points to him. This is the way sort of kings would be to sort of sit up on high and look down on people and make them recognize them as lifted up. Only Jesus' tone is ironic. He says, I'll be lifted up. When he talks about being lifted up on a throne, he's talking about being lifted up on a cross. And it's not that he would draw people to himself because he's just like a king on a, on a throne who would threaten. He's a king on a cross saying, all the world may come to me on the cross. And so you have this double entendre of being lift, lifted up, dying a humiliating death on a cross in which he would be exalted and lifted up. Verse 33, and he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The people are beginning to panic a little bit like, whoa, hey, wait a second, you're the conqueror, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one. <laughs> what's that? Lifted up and the death and what's, what's that about? You see, Jesus' intention the whole time was to have victory over the prince of this world, and he was going to do he was going to accomplish this victory in an unheard of way. If you were to ask someone in the first century, what's the only way to have victory on a cross? They would say, pray that you pass out, pray that you die swiftly. It's a humiliating and torturous death. That's the best way to sort of deal with the cross. And yet the early church begins to start talking about something that happens on the cross, and they start calling it victory. 
There's Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, up on this cross, and the church keeps referring to it as victory. This thing, the symbol of obvious failure and humiliation becomes a reason to celebrate victory. I mean, if you were to ask most Christians about the victory of Christ, most every one of us would say, well, it's Easter. It's Sunday. It's Easter Sunday. You rose from the dead. Victory. Which that is clearly a victorious moment. But just to keep in mind something, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus rose for our sins. That is to say the victory over sin and evil and death isn't upon resurrection. It's at the cross where Jesus dies. Now, the the resurrection proves that Jesus is powerful even over death. But the victory is won on the cross. And in in the Bible, when people talk of salvation, when the Jews talk of salvation, when the early Christians talk about salvation, they're not talking about just sort of the management of sin. They're talking about something much bigger than that. Because the rescuer's salvation is always about overcoming the tyranny of one master and being set free out of slavery to live as you were intended. That's salvation, that's redemption, that's being set free. And like I said earlier, the sort of earliest example of that is from Pharaoh in Egypt. And now in the first century, it's not about Caesar from whom they need to be set free. It's from the prince of this world. If you're very good at flipping in your Bible, you might turn to 1 John 3.8. If you're not, it'll just be on the screen. But there is this sort of picture of what Jesus' intent that John sort of records in 1 John that is what Jesus intends to do, his, his sole purpose in sort of uh, uh, his ministry on the earth looks like this. The one who does what is sinful, this is 1 John 3, 8. The one who does, does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You might underline the word destroy. If, it might be different in your Bible, but destroy the devil's work. Now, give you a sense of what this word means. That word is like the second half of the word analyze, L-Y-S-E. Analyze is like to break things down into their smaller parts. Some of you guys who are either high school students or, or college students, you take a biology class where there's, you talk about the sort of lysis, cell lysis, it's the breaking down of cell membranes. This is the word lys. And the word, the word, the way that sort of plays out in the Bible, the, the meaning here is to loose the bonds of matrimony. In other words, The work that Jesus set out to do is to cause a divorce between us and Satan. (laughs) That there is an abusive relationship to which the world belongs and it is between us and the deceiver, the accuser, the Satan, Satan, the devil. Which Jesus intends to divorce us from. His work on the cross, the victory of the cross, is to cause, to loose the bonds of the matrimony between us and Satan. That marriage is no more. We have victory over that marriage. It is broken. Now listen closely. All of us can still live as if we're still bound in oneness in that marriage. The power is broken. The record of sin has been destroyed. The defeated one, however, can still speak to us. He is defeated. He is not abolished. He is not evaporated. And so he speaks. Years ago, I was at a camp with a bunch of high school kids. 
And part of the, the camp is this, you know, annual, you know, it's a belly flop competition. But some of you will be familiar. It's like, you guys seen a blob before? Okay, so a blob is like, it's a, it's a big air bladder, about as big as the stage. And on one end of the, bl- the blob is a, a, like a platform and a huge, like, high school offensive lineman would jump off and land on that end of the blob and, you know, shooting a giant a blast of air down to this end where a freshman cheerleader would be sitting right at the end of this thing. And then just, she would just get vaulted into the air uncontrolled. I mean, it's just flailing, roll, they used to call it rolling down the windows, you know, doing this. Down the, you know, like this, this is sort of flop into the water and then everyone would hold up signs rating how great that, that her pain was. So this is just the way that, you know, Christian camps abuse people. But anyway, so there's, that's what's happening on the sink. So I'm, I'm videotaping it and I'm standing next to a group of girls and next to us is this swampy marsh. Like it's this gross, muddy, swampy marsh. There's like some, you know, creature that keeps trying to come out from underneath it and, you know, like just an eyeball. No, I'm just kidding. But there's just this... There's this swampy marsh. It smells bad. It looks terrible. It's right next to the lake where we're all watching this blob competition. And so I'm filming the blob competition, and I see these girls, and I just go, I bet you guys can't jump over that. What? Well, they're, like, they're like, what did you say? I'm like, well, I was just, just looking at this swampy, disgusting marsh. I don't think you guys could jump over it. Now, I should tell you this. I'm, I don't think Carl Lewis in the 84 Olympics with a running start could have jumped over this thing. But I'm filming the blob competition. Hey, way to go. You know, what'd you just say? I don't think you could jump over it. Well, we, we're not going to. Oh, that's fine. I just don't think you could do it. Pretty soon they're like, we're... 30 seconds later, I got these girls trying to jump over this thing. And they're landing on like waist deep, faces slapping the mud. I mean, it was like, I lost my flip flop. And I was like, funny. So I'm sorry to be recording this now. And they're, I was like the La Brea tar pits, you know, they're just stuck in there. I'm like, now, I knew exactly what I was doing. If I or anybody else had threatened to push them in or throw them in, which I wouldn't have done, but if anybody came up to them and said, we're going to throw you in, they would have ran away. They would have said, forget it, we don't want to do that. And all I said was, I don't think you're capable of doing that. Why would you say that? We can do that. And all of a sudden, they're jumping into the mud on their own will. I win. (laughs) I only told them they probably weren't capable of doing something. I had no power over them. I wasn't going to throw them in. They chose to jump in on their own. And the question is this. The power of Satan has been broken. That unholy marriage, that abusive relationship has been broken. And the question for us is this. How much power do you intend to give to a voice that has no power? How will you stop listening to that voice that has no real power in your life? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 if you want, or we'll just put it on the screen as well. Verse 14. It's another way of cutting the same idea. Since the children have flesh and blood, the author of Hebrews here is writing about Jesus. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. If you have a pen, underline break the power. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The word break the power in Greek is the word katargeo. It is, it, is, it is to say to make something useless, to render it useless, to make it idle. What I was thinking about this is like, um, my, I have three kids and they all... Um, 
they're always looking for an excuse to start a water gun fight. Always. I mean, generally it starts with a little splash of the, you know, the sink or something like that. Then pretty soon we got cups and we're like, get outside, you know. And once we got the kids, you know, they're outside running. It doesn't matter if it's raining. It doesn't matter if they're, I mean, they would still squirt someone in the water, like with a water gun. They just can't get enough of it. And so eventually we get the water guns filled up. And if you watch little kids play with a water gun, they can't wait to shoot something. So they just start shooting their, the water guns. Oh, snail, you know, leaves, air. I mean, you know, I'm going to write my name. You know, they try to, so their, their water gun is they're fully armed as they're running around hiding gets emptied very, very quickly. Now, the moment a water gun and a water gun fight is empty, it is rendered useless. And the oldest of my kids knows that he still has one trick left, even if the gun has no water in it. Because the only thing you have left after your water gun is empty and a water gun fight is a threat. So I run up to my three-year-old son, ah, like this, and my, my three-year-old son would run away from an empty water gun. The only power you have in a water gun fight is your words. They are empty threats. They are idle because your gun is empty. To pose the question again in a different way, how long and in how many ways do you intend to run away from an empty water gun? The power of the devil has been made idle. How does Satan's powerless power still have a grip, as the scripture says, of fear in your life? On Sunday nights in the Irvine campus, we meet with a group of sort of college-age folks. And talking earlier, we just got this sense, and maybe it still connects with you in your own life, that the thing most college students, college-age folks are afraid of above anything else is loneliness. And that, uh, my guess is if I ask every one of you in this room to point to the risky or dangerous behavior that you wish you hadn't engaged in earlier on in your life or even, to this, even at this moment right now, it would be because you were either trying to cover over the experience of loneliness or because you were trying to avoid it altogether and you were doing things that you never would have done to not be alone. What is the fear in you? Where you go, there's still power over me. Is it a fear of rejection? Is it a fear of loneliness? Is it a fear of feeling as though you have no value, that you won't be good enough? Is there a fear that you're not worth the effort? I talked to a guy last Sunday night. We're, we're sitting together and he just goes, he's like, I grew up in a great Christian family. People love me. My parents love me. They told me that. He goes, I, I decided to trust Jesus at a very young age in my life. And he goes, I'm totally afraid. I'm so afraid if I don't do everything perfectly, then, I won't, then people will find out that I'm not perfect and they won't ever want to be around me. And somehow there's this person who grew up in the church and is hearing the voice of one who has no power saying, you're not good enough. You are beyond being loved. And he can't recognize that's an empty threat and a lie. What is it for you? What is it for you? The powerless power of the one who's been defeated. I told you about my, my, our fateful basketball season <laughs> with my kids. And we're having our last game. And, you know, by the way, because I said there's four teams, you know, as soon as we lost our last regular season game, which was all of our games, you know, I looked at the parents and the kids and I went, congratulations, you guys. We're in the semifinals of the playoffs because there's only four teams. So, you know, 
final four, you know, here we are. And parents are like, yeah, and they all know. And the kids are like, woo, playoffs. We're like, way to go. You guys worked hard. You won it. You got to the playoffs on effort alone because it wasn't because of our <laughs> winning record. But of course, in our last game, our, it was the first of our, this is the semifinal game. <laughs> we lost. High five in the team, high five in the parents, kind of looking at them like, well, sorry. <laughs> you know, there's no banner, there's no trophy, there's no parade, there's no anything. Our team really knew how to lose well. <laughs> and each parent, as we're walking out, says, hey, if you guys coach again, we want to be on your team. I was like, you guys must hate winning. <laughs> and the referee came up to us, and he goes, you two guys, your team improved more than any other team in the league. He goes, you guys did a great job coaching these kids. And that's when I hugged him and kissed him. No, just kidding. <laughs> Walking out to the car, and, you know, we're kind of laughing about the season and like, well, you know, whatever. And this other team who had just beaten us, who ended up winning the whole league, two of their kids, their parents still came up to us, and they said, your team had more fun than any other team in this entire league. We had, we had a mom who brought a cowbell every game because every basket we made, we had, it was like fireworks and, it, you know, like, cue the band, you know, you know, it's just like everything, it was just like such a, such a moment. And so we had the cowbell, everything, we had people standing up during free throws, you know, we do the like, you know, make a free throw and then the whoosh, you know, like a high school team and never, never happened. So we just would. Woo! You know, whatever. So the, we had all this noise. We had like a little micro, you know, sort of small side wave kind of going up with like eight parents, you know. We, we were just going crazy. And, the, and these other parents who had just won the league come to us and say, if you guys coach again, we really want to be on your team. I'm like, Disney is going to buy the rights to this story. It is going to be on the Disney. This is just so cute. I can't believe it. It's a Hallmark card. I just can't believe this is happening right now. And it raised the question because by all accounts, our season had been a failure. We lost every single game in some, sometimes in spectacularly horrible fashion. Most of our games were not close. And you have to ask the question for a, a, an eight and nine-year-old, what does real victory actually mean? What does it look like? Because in that moment, we started to go, maybe we did something right. Maybe there was some real victory actually won in what seems like to be an otherwise losing moment. The cross is the same thing. There's Jesus lifted up on the cross. In a moment of clear and obvious failure and shame to which his followers abandoned him and said, we lost, we're over, it's done. And to which the early church began to say, no, 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 wait. There's victory that just got won right there. The power of Satan has been broken. Sin and evil has been defeated. And so we can say, Hosanna. Hosanna, he has saved and is saving us. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, communion. You're going to do it a little differently than maybe you have taken it before. As a pastor, I get to lead people into communion a lot of times, and um, we're going to do this a little differently. First of all, the word communion has a similar sort of tone to it as the word community, which means we do it together. And we're going to do this. Up here, there's some tables, and what I want you to do is this. You're going to come up, and you're going to take a piece of the bread, and you're going to dip it into the cup, and the person in front of you will turn to you and say, these, these words are, it's four words. We're all going to practice it first, okay? The victory of Christ. Got it? Okay, on the count of three, we're going to say it. And don't say it like this, the victory of Christ. Okay, it's the victory of Christ, okay? Does that make sense? So, on the count of three, one, two, three, go. 
very well done. Way better than 9 o'clock service. Not enough caffeine for them. Okay. So you'll walk up. Do not, take, do not take the bread, dip, and then walk off. Okay? I will trip you. Okay? You need to take, take the bread. Someone in front of you, if you're the first person, one of, someone from Mariners will tell you. They'll, they'll say the words, the victory of Christ. You'll, dip, you'll take it, dip it, and then you'll look at the next person and say, as they're taking the symbol of Christ's victory on the cross, the victory of Christ. Does that make sense? And then you can go sit down. Now, here's the thing. When people agree in the Bible, there is a word that means verily or truly. It's a word that says, I agree, or it is true. That word is the word, amen. So when someone says to you, as you're taking and dipping the victory of Christ, you may say back to them, amen. Does that make sense? So I say, what, so I say the victory of Christ, and you say, amen. Okay, good. You try it again. The, okay, on the count of three, you're going to say the victory of Christ. One. No, wait. On the count of three. <laughs> Math people. Okay. You could have been on my basketball team. Okay. <laughs> on the count of three. One, two, three. Amen. Okay, does that make sense? Close your eyes. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion as a community. Jesus, we claim and acknowledge and celebrate and remember your victory on the cross. In a moment which seemed like absolute failure and humiliation, we call out and recognize your victory over sin and evil and death. Jesus, right now we come before you and acknowledge the voices, the the things, the, the lies that are being spoken to us, which are leading us to a place we don't want to be. We acknowledge those things and call them lies. We call them deception. Or would you examine our own hearts such that our lives might be made known to you in real and tangible ways? Would our own lives be made known to us that we might take communion, the Lord's Supper, as victory? Jesus, as we pronounce your victory, taking the symbols of the bread and of the the juice, the wine, would we be able to say in authority to to our own community of people gathered here, the victory of Christ, and hear people to say back, amen. Would that be made true in our own lives? Would we celebrate victory today? Jesus, it's in your name as we line up, as we take communion, that we remember you and acknowledge your victorious conquering of the accuser, the deceiver. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So why don't we stand and just kind of find your way to the the tables and celebrate the victory of Christ.